Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy holidays, everyone. With Christmas and New Year's coming up back-to-back, as usual, we have holiday week clips shows for you. Every year at this time, we re-air some of our favorite shows from the year that was, and that's what we'll be doing again this year. First up, Gary Simmons. The Perez Art Museum Miami is presenting Gary Simmons' Public Enemy, a survey of Simmons's 35-year career. The exhibition reveals how Simmons has addressed race, class, and U.S. history in ways that have remained persistently au courant. The show was curated by Renee Morales and Jadine Collingwood with Jack Schneider. It's on view in Miami through April 28, 2024. The exhibition originated at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. The MCA and Delmonico Books have published a really, really good catalog. Do not miss it. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $50 to $60. By the way, the Perez has put together a superb website for Gary Simmons' Public Enemy. There will be a link at manpodcast.com. It's well worth a look. Gary Simmons, after the break. Artist, author, activist, educator. Witness the groundbreaking practice of Faith Ringgold in Faith Ringgold American People, opening at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, November 18th. This comprehensive retrospective features over five decades of the artist's works, which detail the complexity of life in the United States and radical social change from the civil rights movement to today. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Rembrandt to Van Gogh, Masterpieces from the Armand Hammer Collection. Experience masterworks from the renowned Hammer Museum collection spanning the Renaissance to post-Impressionism. Highlights of the exhibition include paintings from the 16th and 17th century by Titian and Rembrandt. The Armand Hammer Collection also includes three works by Vincent van Gogh. This exhibition offers a special opportunity to see these great works of art shown together outside Los Angeles for the very first time in this century. On view through January 21st. Learn more at mfah.org slash Rembrandt Van Gogh. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Krissa in New York, through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first 
to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Krissa in New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the highly anticipated biennial exhibition, showcasing 39 artists and collectives living and working in Los Angeles. On view from October 1st to December 31st, and filling nearly every gallery of the museum, this year's edition addresses the intersection between art, community, and everyday life. These practices embrace the value of craft, materiality, performance, and collectivity. Accompanying the exhibition are artists' talks, performances, screenings, and conversations. For more information on the exhibition and programs, visit hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Gary Simmons, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. When we last talked six years ago, we talked about a series of work you made in the early 1990s that used Ku Klux Klan-related clothing and nooses and whatnot. But we did not talk about the work you made before that, and I have kicked myself about that ever since. Hmm. So I, I want to start by talking about that work you made in, in the late 1980s. So just to set the stage... In 1988, you finished up at the School of Visual Arts in New York and went west to CalArts, just north of L.A. And within a year of arriving there, you started making work that referenced classrooms and schools, one of which is at the MCA, Disinformation Supremacy Board from 89. What drove your interest in education and schooling? You know, I, I think probably two-prong. I grew up going to public school and had my certain issues with with my experience in public school setting. I think that it's a complicated thing, public schools around the country. You know, there's not a lot of money for programs. There's, you know, the books are old. Some of the just teaching to the test, very creative. I think that it, unless a student is fortunate enough to have probably parents or relatives or somebody that's going to teach them outside of that, format they're not going to they're not going to dig deep into histories and math and science issues that you might you might you know you're limited to what those teachers and it, and it's it's no rip on the on the teachers per se i think that they're overworked and they have way too many students per class and you know i could we could take this whole podcast into public school critiques but i think that my specifically you know, I'm very close. I was very close to a lot of my relatives in the West Indies and overseas, and you know they would come to visit, and I would real and they, a lot of us were the same or very similar age, and I started to realize the differences between what they were learning and the histories that they were getting and what I was getting, and they knew far more about European history and histories in in South America and Mayan culture and things like that, and and. We were very, very limited, and, and so I felt almost ignorant that they could speak multiple languages, and they were, you know, learning these kinds of histories that I knew nothing about. And I, I think that became curious for me. I think that sort of ignited a question of, like, what are we learning and what aren't we learning? What are we 
teaching our students and what are we cutting out? And, you know, it started to become very, you know, self-reflexive reflection and looking inward as to what can I teach myself that I'm not getting in the classroom. And, you know, by the time I got to college, I realized that I was in classes and courses that students were privy to a lot of writing and philosophies and materials that I wasn't, and I had a lot to catch up on. So being a kid that was also dyslexic and not realizing it till much later, dyslexia wasn't really a thing when we were um, young. It was, you just read slower or you, you know, like there were all these other reasons. And so you kind of got around your dyslexia in a way. And I think in some ways that was almost fortunate because you had to you had to find a way in your own terms to process and understand information. And so I knew that there was a lot of stuff that I needed to read quickly to be up to speed with everybody else that was around me. And it became, you know, I have this athletic background, so I'm very competitive. And it was important for me to be able to stay within, you know, boundaries or you know, the conversation, keep up with what's being talked about in critiques or in art theory classes and and understand it. So, you know, I really was drawn to the Donald Cuspitz and his wife and, you know, Rosalind Deutsch and Craig Owens and all of these guys were teaching at visual arts when I was there. I was very, very fortunate to have some of the most important art thinkers of our time, all in one place. And um, they were very patient. And if you showed the kind of burning desire to, to know this information, they were very willing to stick with you and, and help you out. So I just drank it in. It was also a time coming in, you know, the mid 80s, where politics, race politics, queer politics, AIDS was we were consumed by it every day. You know, we had friends that were passing away. Society was just shunning whole groups of us in the arts, whether you're of color or you're queer or you were sick and you were just kind of pushed into this corner. There was this kind of team mentality. So I think that that sense of critique was in our kind of art DNA. And that's where I started to really, you know, I was really schooled by a lot of the minimalists. I was very drawn to the Robert Morris and, and Linda Benglis and Jackie Windsor and, and Jack Whitten and all of these folks that were like amazing teachers at SVA. They were also kind of my mentors. So they were, they were fantastic. So I had the minimalists and then I had the conceptualists. So I had like Kasuth. I had, you know, all of those guys were there at the same time. And then when I later on went on to CalArts, it was Michael Asher and so on and so on. So it was a really great time to be an art student, you know, and I relish and, and celebrate that because those folks really wanted to be teachers. They weren't just doing it because they needed to pay the rent or, you know, fabricate a new object. I think one of the things I hear you saying is that one reason education surfaces in the work really leads your work at the beginning of your career in the mid-20s is because after being bored in high school, you were excited to learn yeah. suddenly. Yeah. And that, that almost surprised you? It did. 
It did. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can truly say when I was in high school, I, I hated school. I hated everything about it. I just wanted to get out and I wanted to get into the world and get on with my life. And then I started to meet folks in college settings that I really began to embrace the idea of learning and drinking all that in and questioning and, and you know, that, that sense of debate and talking and back and forth and critique was right in my wheelhouse because it was, you know, for me, that was just like being on a sports field. You know, it was, it was this banter, this back and forth, this, you know, you take a shot and then I take your hit and give you one back. And it was all like kind of in this mentality of exchange that, reflected school and reflected how we learn. And, you know, there were even, it was even embedded in the music that we were listening to, you know, hip hop was in the early, you know, days. And, you know, I was listening to a lot of like Boogie Down Productions and Chris Parker and, you know, they had a song called You Must Learn. And it was an incredible time. Like you could recodings and then be listening to Public Enemy at the same time. And so it was always around you, this kind of almost like throb, like a baseline critique and analysis and looking at things and, and parsing, tearing them apart, you know, and, and it's, it's so embedded in me that even to this day, my daughter is now 17. From the time she was born, I've, you know, taught her that thinking critically is your most important tool in your toolbox is everything every action has a consequence you know it's going to have a reaction and no matter which way you go that consequence is going to shape the way you move forward and that's how she talks to her friends and so it's kind of a passed down tradition and I think that it's one of the most important things that we do in the studio is to question things we're not sometimes we get confused that this is like the entertainment business and it's you know we're not for the most part we're intellectuals and you'd like to think that and this isn't just painting wonderful still lives you know those things are necessary and they're 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 wonderful to have but you know i think that sense of critique is is a thread that we all kind of have that sits in there and that's the work that sticks with you and like that I, I think that sense of critique in, say, your work or in Alison Sarr's work is what makes the work sing. But I think at the same time, and, and is why the work will still be there in 100 years, will still be prominent in 100 years. I think I think that probably has some short to medium term career impacts in mm -hmm. ways that the work can be threatening to certain people in, yeah. in ways that might prevent immediate opportunities. But I think in the long run, that's why I keep returning to your work and have for a long time. There are two closely related 1989 works that you made that address education that I wanted to particularly raise. One is Disinformation Paragraph from 1989, which is at MoMA, and that's a series of long strips of blackboard that are only a couple of inches tall and then black chalk, and they're all presented, installed as if it was like a paragraph on the wall. So it's a big installation. Another is Erasure Chair, which is at the Nasher at Duke University, which is made out of blackboard erasers of the sort that you used on blackboards that, you know, the like teachers would write on with chalk. Yeah. So you're 25 when you make these and 
what strikes me about those, one of the things that strikes me about those works is that you're a young pup and you're reaching for something that even in 1989 was already old timey and, and nostalgic, not quite sentimental, but nostalgic. What got you thinking about blackboards and chalk and erasers and why did something old timey fit? how you wanted to address education. Those two, those are two of my favorite, among the favorites of, I think I've made throughout my career. The paragraph was really, uh, you know, I was thinking about like redacted government letters and things like that. And, and I think the chalkboard, you know, for me, it was really, I was really about pairing that Jackie Windsor used to have this, this really interesting thing she would say. There was a big difference between the painting department and the, the sculptors and the sculptors were kind of we were seen as kind of these you know kind of knuckle draggers in the <laughs> in the art department that just kind of welded a lot of stuff we didn't have a lot of thoughts and you know things like that we took it we took it personally and any opportunity we had to take shots at the painters we would do all in good fun but you know jackie used to say we'd be talking about a piece and she'd say you know Gary, you should be able to roll this piece down a hill and anything that falls off is irrelevant. And when it gets, when that object gets to the bottom of that hill and all that shit has fallen off, that's your sculpture. And I was like, wow, that, and to this day, <laughs> this is like 35 something years later, it still sticks with me when she says that because that sense of, paring down and cutting the fat off and getting down to the, the most important features of what you're trying to get across is basically the credo of, of all minimalists, right? Is to pare things down, you know, that cube and how it relates to the, to the um, scale and the architecture of the room and things like, you know, you think about Joel Shapiro's, those little bronze houses. You think about Jackie's you know, cubes and these things, they're all like the most minimal object that it, that it can be. And it speaks volumes that left a huge, massive impact on me. And so what it, what it really meant was that every stroke, every gesture, every mark has to have a reason to be there. And for me to talk about education, I wanted to find an object that really contained everything that I was talking about, you know, and it, and I struggled to try to think about what that would be. And I thought a writing tablet or a, a chalkboard is the place that we, we learn, we teach, we discipline, we communicate. And then it just has this aesthetic like marker for you that it just takes you back to a place in your own personal history that it's not it's not isolated to my history per se. It includes all of us because we all had a, a relationship to it. And now, even generations later, and you talk about younger kids don't really even, they don't use chalkboards. They use whiteboards, they use computers, they, all this. They still have a kind of iconic nature to them that people, they might not use them, but they know what they're for. And so they're a very- They're, they're still in The Simpsons. They're still in The Simpsons, and, you know, in that opening of The Simpsons is, is one of my favorites, you know, and he's, I will not do whatever. And, you know, that sense of, of discipline, of, of cleaning the chalkboards, like all of those things. You know, I remember 
talking in class while my history teacher was trying to give a lesson. And suddenly this chalkboard eraser would come flying across the, the room. This guy had pinpoint accuracy and bing, he would hit you in the head with this thing and chalk would just go flying all over the place. And he got my attention. There's just aspects of the classroom that are so iconic and attached to your childhood and memories and you know whether we romanticize them or we you know alter them in our brain they still become that marker or trigger for whatever it is we're trying to recall i can think of lots of reasons why in the moma piece you had a blackboard and black chalk but what were the reasons you chose for that specific choice the black chalk the black chalk i mean with with the with the paragraph per se you know i really wanted to why they were that space was I wanted, they all kind of represent kind of word forms. There's no specific word that they represent. They're, they're stand-ins. They're for what could be that redacted letter. I wanted to present something that the audience would make that, that leap to, oh yes, like redacted letters, government letters. What am I getting? You know, what am I not getting? In the case of of the size and scale of them. If you tried to draw on those little chalkboards with that chalk, you couldn't, you know, it would, it would prevent you from doing that. And I wanted to, so, so let me jump in really quick. The chalk is really large. Yeah. So this isn't like a teeny little bit of chalk you hold between two fingers. This is chalk the size of your fist. That, yeah. That big around. It's more like a sidewalk chalk. You know, it's, it's something that a, that a kid could hold in their hands and you know, that somebody potentially might have a lesson to, you know, if you were teaching a course, but you would, the space, there's not enough space allowed for you to actually do that. And then if you could, I wanted the chalk to be black so that the image, the implication being that even if you could get something across, it still would be very difficult for you to read. And that sense of who, what am I learning? What am I teaching? Who's, who's the recipient? Who's the, you know, who's presenting it? That, that question is, at the center of what that piece is really about. And I love that piece. There was, you know, there was an intent, intention to have a whole room at that time of these word forms and things, but you know, time passes and you never get around to doing that. Maybe one day I'll do that, do the room installation of those, but. Simultaneous presence and invisibility is, is, is really key to that, that work and, I, and, and kind of continues in your work really for decades. Another way in which, I mean, one reason we're spending so much time on this extremely early work is because blackboards and chalk and the effects that you would bring into paintings for decades afterward are, are, are really important. So in that 89 work, you're not writing on a blackboard. So it's just there. The reference is there. And there's no writing in chalk, as it were, air quotes, until several years later, at least as far as I know. And I'm sorry if this seems a bit prosaic, but given that it seems to have taken a while, how did you migrate from erasers and blackboards and chalk being present to using paint and making it look like chalk on a blackboard? I don't mean with what work. I think we'll get to some of that in a minute, maybe. But the idea of the form to activate chalk and blackboards, but not to use chalk and blackboards, to, to use paint. <laughs> I was always drawn to painting. I think painting is, although it's the first 
might be, you know, digging myself a, a hole here, and I'm sure somebody's going to get at me on social media somewhere. But, you know, I think painting in some ways is viewed as one of the purest forms of art making, right? And, and it's certainly, if you had to create a sort of elite meritocracy, you'd probably put painting at the top of that thing. You know, performance artists would probably kill me for saying that, but it's true. I think that, you know, who was it that said, that, you know, sculpture is the thing that you bump into when you back up to look at a painting. And so I think the trouble with painting and image making and drawing on the wall, even, you know, wall drawing, is finding your niche, your space, just carving out a mark that's yours. That's, it's a very difficult process. I don't think, you know, it's as, it's as easy as a lot of people think when they get into the studio i mean you, you stretch up a canvas or you staple it to the wall however you want to work or maybe you work on panel once you decide to put down some marks on that surface you're addressing history in a way that's not like anything else and if you tear the canvas there's somebody that's done that so you're responding to that if you write text on the canvas there's that if you you know go completely abstract is that if you go monochrome this that you know like it just there's a such a rich history of doing of creating these things and if you enter into any one realm you have to tackle those histories i think um there's other forms of art making that you can at least allow yourself room to move around a little easier it's painting is very confining and so finding that mark that you can feel comfortable with that speaks to those history marks comfortable enough that it's in your own terms, I think is very difficult for most young painters. And for me, I had to find my way into painting through drawing, you know, because drawing was my first real love and drawing and, and object making. And for me to enter into painting, it needed to be something physical it needed to be something that had a conceptual application that was related to what my other work was like. And these are things that probably were my own restrictions. I don't think anybody outside of my studio really would have cared. But for me, there had to be a system because everything is has a kind of system to it. You, you make your marks here. What you're marking on has a spe specific need. How you address the room you know, the size, the scale of the wall drawings are related to cinematic screens. You know, like there's all these kinds of things, these almost barricades that I put up for myself. And maybe, maybe some of them was unnecessary, but for me working through it, that's how I found my way to being comfortable with paint and mixing paint and allowing myself to say, okay, I found my little place on the island that I can do my thing. And now that I have found that I feel comfortable enough to move around and swim around and do whatever it is I like. Now, other folks might look at, hear me say that and say, well, why nothing was stopping you from jumping in and doing that. But when you learn in a certain kind of way that these things all have to relate and they need to come out of one thing and they speak to another, it wasn't that I was thinking about histories so much like, in this arrogant way it was more i just didn't think you know that i could do like what ellsworth kelly does i love those paintings to death you know i think 
Kelly does things. Bryce Martin, who just passed away, is a hero to me. You know, like when Martin picked up calligraphy and started making that his own and the relationship between Bryce's hand and brush and the removal of the hand and that that distance from the canvas is is stunning. I mean, I could go on on, on Bryce Martin for weeks because he's he's so important. He for me, Bryce Martin is as important to my practice as Cy Twombly, as David Hammond, as Adrian Piper. You know, these, would not have guessed. The, you wouldn't guess, but I think that, that some of the things that influence you in mark making come from places that most folks would never stitch those people together. You know, and there's a, there's a lot of painters that I could probably list off. You know, there's, you know, Richter is one. Oh, well, the blurs. I mean, Polka, you know, certainly. The, 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 Richter, the Richter, Witten blurs are. Yeah, is right in, in foundational. You know, there's other, there's, there's, I have contemporaries that I admire. You know, I, I like Sarah Z is a massive, I'm a huge fan of Sarah Z. I think she's a brilliant artist. But it also kind of sounds like you're saying that one of the benefits of moving into, into painting was being able to avoid 500 years of painting history by sourcing your interest and ideas about painting and work you'd been making in the previous five years. It was, it was a path forward that meant you didn't have to reckon with or deal with Titian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. You know, that's, that's a, that's a great example. <laughs> you know, it's blurring I, too, but we'll leave it alone. <laughs> I, I skipped over the Titian part and went straight yeah. to Twombly. You know, it was, it, he spoke to me, you know, like size, yeah. size painting spoke to me, like from the jump. I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, these are some of the most beautiful marks I've ever seen in my life. And that's that's why Sai, you know, yes, there's the chalkboard thing and the whole thing. But 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 really, it's the mark making that that has me all like hot and bothered. You know, the same thing as Bryce. I think the Bryce, those marks are incredible. And where you see like um, one color will overlay another and the grounds that Bryce is painting on at the time. Those, those were gestures and marks that he took from a, a completely different usage and kind of put the microscope on it and turned it into this, these incredibly lyrical, beautiful paintings. That's mark making at its best. You know, like you, you think about, and then you look at somebody like, a, you know, Larry Weiner, you know, who is the king of wall drawings for me and who could take something like text and make it so tactile and so real for you that you know by just really taking apart the way that we that you know text and syntax and 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 all of that works you know that kind of semiotics of of using i and we and really tearing apart a sentence and using it as an object nobody has ever done it better than larry weiner you know like it's he's the greatest at it and so i mean you know th these are folks that i think are are amazing probably you know i look at somebody like jack witten and he almost like crushed all of that together into one person and i was fortunate enough to have this guy as a mentor when i was in undergraduate school so 
he's the one that opened the doors to the to the Bryces and the size and the people like that. Fortunate. I think that just about the first work in which you you begin painting and migrating the chalky stuff, if you will, mm-hmm. into painting is a 1994 work called Step Into the Arena, The Essentialist Trap, full of mark making, um, yep. just as you were discussing. There's lots of Twombly-ish in that work. And, and it's a work that plays with dance and boxing kind of off of each other. Two things I want to ask about that. First, what was the essentialist trap? And why were you thinking about essentialism, if you remember, in 1994? Was it was it the multi-culty thing that was... <laughs> I think sweeping? it was the multi-culty thing. I think <laughs> that, you know, there's a sense of this notion, you know, I think that there's almost a necessity to be essentialist in some cases for survival means. And when you, you know, when kids are, when history is so murky and so lost and you're dealing with really an oral history passed down from one one generation to the other, it's almost important to maintain a sense of like who you are through a kind of essentialism. And I think that at a certain point, different forms of performance and sports and entertainment become some of those things. And those that's where the trap sits, is that if you have a wicked jump shot or you can really turn a verse, that you can be, you know, you can play for the Knicks or you can grab a microphone and be at, you know, whatever, you know, out in front of a crowd rapping. And and these are kinds of essentialist traps, I don't, you know, like... A, it's I looked at, you know, like I looked at some of the percentages of young black students applying to colleges now, and it'll make you almost cry that, you know, most schools, you know, you have probably five percent black students in, in, in universities at any given time. That's not accepted. That's five percent of the accepted enrolled students at a university. So if you're talking, imagine something like a Princeton or. Duke or Harvard or University of Michigan, you know, like you're, you're talking about top tier schools and 5% are black kids. You, you have kids that are turning their back on applying to some of these universities and they're going to HBCUs. Now, HBCUs are starting to get over applications and they have hundreds of thousands of applications coming their way in 10 years ago. A lot of these kids weren't going there. So what does that tell folks? That tell folks is that, you know, these students are feeling that they're left, they're either left out or left behind or not being considered. And they're going to universities where folks that look like them are going to teach them. And, you know, I think that's great on one hand. I think it's unfortunate that they feel that they can't go to a UCLA or an NYU or Columbia on another hand. So we're doing something dramatically wrong, you know? I think everything you just said relates to one of the key elements of that work, and that is the particularly white tendency to put black people in a box. Right. That work of yours from 94 is the 1990s version of the vile racist Laura Ingram telling the philanthropist and activist and basketball player LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Right. You know, and, and, and it's in that work. Not, not, not that what Ingram was doing is it was a new thing, but boy, did she do it. The other thing about that work I wanted to ask about, okay, so there's sports in that work. There's boxing. Mm-hmm. Boxing stays in your work for a long time. Sports yep. 
stays in your work for a long time. Absolutely. That work also has dance in it and dance does not stay in your work for a long time. How did you manage to land on dance once and stop? <laughs> Is it just that one time? I think it, it does appear once. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. It's the only one I could think of. <laughs> I think it, I think it does, but you're, I, you're, oh, it does come back. All right. Not as much as sports, though. I mean, not sports, as much as sports. Is in your work I think a it lot. Come, it's, they go hand in hand in, in some ways because I think that, well, the dance, a lot of it is either, in some cases, it's ballroom dance, and in other cases, it's the cakewalk. So, you know, in a cakewalk, dance was used as this covert way of communicating or, or you know, even something like jumping the broom, which was, you know, this ritual that you would perform to be married as a couple without the slave owner knowing what, you know, you, 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 were, you were, that this was happening. So I, I liked the covertness of this form of almost like self-entertainment, like this is for us by us kind of thing. And, and that there's this secret that's going on, this form of talking to each other, communicating to each other without outsiders knowing who's, you know, what you're doing. So I think sports, particularly boxing comes up all the time. And it's not because of, well, I am a fan of boxing. I think it's a beautiful sport historically, but I think that boxing historically has more of a political presence than any of the other sports. One could argue, say Arthur Ashe in tennis, or, you know, there are isolate, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson baseball, like there are figures that become political because of who and what they were at the time. But boxing goes almost outside of the sport and becomes this form of combatants that represent countries. I'm talking about like, you know, somebody Max like Schmeling. a Jack, Max Schmeling or, you know, a Jack Johnson. Who, those are the two. You know, those guys, Joe Lewis and Schmeling fought and it was literally Lewis was the first time a black figure was representing the United States and you had, yeah. you know, racist white men that were looking at Joe Lewis as this representative of, you know, the United States. And then these are people that wouldn't allow Lewis to even eat at the same counter or go into the same hotel. But once he's in the ring, he represents the States and knocked out, you know, those dirty Germans, you know, like that was the, the thought and Schmeling represented Nazi Germany. And Schmeling wasn't a Nazi. (laughs) I think Hitler just embraced him as, uh, you know, this figure. So, and the truth is, is an interesting side note, is that later in their careers, Schmeling actually helped out Joe Lewis when he was down on his luck and and, um, hurting for money. And paid for his funeral, I think. Yeah, paid for his funeral. And, you know, and they were actually friends. So it was this very strange kind of thing where they were pitted against each other, not necessarily so much in a race sort of way. It was more of a country, almost like world war kind of thing. These figures all had specific markers historically. Jack Johnson won, you know, Louis Schmeling, Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, you know, I can go on and on. Uh, Even, even, even Mike Tyson, you know, like it's somebody that's as controversial as Mike Tyson, who went to jail for numerous occasions, Mike represents something to young black men that is bigger than the sport. 
is bigger than even Mike himself. I don't even think Mike knows. And that's not to say that he's ignorant or stupid. It's it's more, I think it's it's so big that I don't even think he can get his head around what and, and I think it's changed. You and I grew up with one Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson has become a kitsch reality TV fig type figure today. Exactly. So, so 23-year-olds listening to us are like, what are those old heads talking about? What are they talking about? You know, like, <laughs> isn't that the guy from The Hangover? <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that, too. <laughs> For more on Simmons on boxing, listen to, um, I think, Gary Simmons' second appearance on The Man Podcast when we talked about it a good bit. I wanted to hit one other key moment of transition before moving into the 2000s and some more recent work. When and why did the chalked, blurred surface become fire? And why? I think that the erasures, the more I did them, I realized through drawing on paper, actually, through that a lot of the drawings act as this way for me to understand how I'm gonna how the erasure is gonna work. Is it gonna go left? Is it gonna go right? Is it gonna go up, down, sideways? Is it gonna look like it's spinning? Can I create a speed thing so that it looks like a whirling top? If I do a certain gesture with my hand, it'll replicate a kind of flame or smoke or fire. And I think that I learned through manipulation of my hands that I could create the subject matter, affect the subject matter by how I manipulate the image. That it isn't just a sweeping left to right, you know, kind of thing or up and down. Like I can do both or have every an effect of something sweeping into the frame by dragging it out of the frame. It's almost like the reverse. It's funny because it almost acts, the, the act of doing them is almost like this dyslexic act. The direction that I perform them in, the image feels like it's going in the opposite direction. So it, it's this very interesting thing that happens. <laughs> That's really interesting because it sounds like you're saying that your hand learned how to do a thing. And then after your brain looked at what your hand had done, you realized how it could be useful within the narratives and issues yeah. and subjects you were addressing. That's exactly with. how it happened. <laughs> There's never there ever been a Gary Simmons drawing show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's really literally how that happened. I started to, to um, learn that, you know, I have these I wanted to do these buildings that spoke to the Watts riots or the Detroit riots or the Newark riots. And, and there was all this burning down the city thing. So I wanted to create these buildings that looked like they were ablaze. And through just practice, 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 that's how the flame thing sort of developed. So I can, it depends on what the image is. If I was going to do something like a, a surfer, I could probably replicate, you know, that tumbling feeling of a wave wiping out a surfer because of the, the direction that I can create of the marks that are made. So it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, any other, any other kind of person that deals with mark making over the course of time, you learn how to manipulate it for your own purpose. That example sounds like whiteness being wiped out. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that pun there <laughs> for a moment. Although, I mean, that is sort of the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you are one of the few artists who has made work 
specifically, almost explicitly addressing whiteness and its constructions and its perpetuations. I know that for a lot of black artists, Paul and Paji Sapoya comes to mind. The failure of white artists to address whiteness is a problem and an issue. And so the work I wanted to ask about kind of in that vein is an untitled work you made in 2001 of an all white still, you know, like a Appalachian moonshine makers still. Why did you want to make a still? And should we think about that piece as the literal construction of a racialized mythology? I think that really, I'll answer the first part. I can answer the first part. I don't know if I can answer the second part because I think that that's for the viewer to determine. The first part was I was fascinated by this idea of alcohol stills and things images or objects that we think we know we've heard they have legend there's legacy or legend to them right but we've never really seen one like a still is one of those things that you say it and people know what you're talking about but they've never really they don't know how one works and they've never really seen one in person so i started to research research is as we've talked before is massively important to my work so I started to research alcohol stills from, you know, during prohibition time and and things like that. And there's all these photographs of police groups of police officers that just confiscated a still somewhere in the mountains or in the South or, you know, in somebody's bathtub or, or whatever it is. And they always have these kind of coil things and funnels and, you know, it looks like some madcap science project that's gone awry. So really what I did was I, I started to draw some of the stills from these photographs. And at the time, 3D imaging wasn't around. And there was a company that I contacted, I can't remember how I've gotten in touch with them, but I reached out to them and I said, hey, listen, can you take, you know, CAD programs were just really coming in to be a thing outside of architects and architecture. So I reached out to this company, I don't remember the name of the company, and I said, listen, can you take a drawing, like a two-dimensional drawing that I do, and make it a three-dimensional object? And they go, oh, yeah, we could definitely do that. So I did this drawing, right? So it's a, here's the photograph, which is all photographs distort, as we know. So you have the original, then you have the distorted image, then you have a drawing of the distorted image. And then, you know, then you had this three-dimensional re-imaging of the drawing of the photograph of the thing. So there was all this removal from the real, if you will. And that's really what I was interested in. So I, I wanted this kind of ghost ship and once we made the, the the image they were sprayed with this kind of fiberglass and then painted to match the walls of the gallery or museum whatever institution that that piece shows in the paint is always matched to the walls of that institute so if it's sinclair white if it's benjamin moore super white the object is then painted super white because i wanted it to kind of disappear and appear for you like if there's this pushing and pulling and then there's this removal of multiple generations away from the original and that's really where that was that sort of the physicality of that piece came from the other side of it was the subject matter i was really interested in i saw somebody that was in 
incredibly drunk. I was close to my house in my apartment in New York. And this guy was like fall down, blackout drunk. Sidebar, I did help the guy to sit up. <laughs> I didn't just leave this guy there. So he was really almost like, you know, he was two sheets to the wind. And I helped him out. I put, sat him up. I, you know, tried to talk to him to see if he was even, you know, present. And I realized the guy wasn't present. And I thought, you know, I've gotten drunk. I'm not a saint. I've gotten drunk. I've done drugs in my past, you know, like all things. But I've always, always been in control of my faculties. You know, it was always about getting high, not being high or getting drunk, not being drunk. This guy was blackout drunk. There's no way he was going to remember this evening. And I thought, what is it that makes somebody drink so much that they want to get out of their body, out of their presence and go to this other place, whether it's shooting heroin or taking fentanyl or drinking until you can't see straight anymore. Like, what is it that you're getting away from? And where are you going? Like, where does the brain actually go when it goes to this mystical place? So that's really what I was interested in, in that kind of a lot of the work that deals with alcohol and intoxication and drugs and all of that. It wasn't about the sensationalism of the drugs. It was more about, like, what is it about somebody that shoots heroin to a point that they're not present in their body or their mind in this place. And there's this disappearance, you know, like you're, you're here, but you're vacant. And there's this absence of presence in getting that high or that drunk or whatever it is. And that's what I was trying to, to get at. And I think that to understand that, it's something that is generations away from whatever that original problem or thing was that you were getting at. So that's where all of those things stitched together. I think in your description of how you came to make the piece, you are describing how mythology is formed. And so I'm going to feel pretty okay about that, about, about thinking of that piece as being about <laughs> racialized mythology. In 2006, you inaugurated an interest that won't become maybe exactly a primary focus of your work, but that will definitely stick around for a while, and that's domesticity. Suddenly, or at least to me, seemingly suddenly, you begin making paintings of houses. And I think the first one is an enormous horizontal picture of Philip Johnson's glass house in New mm. Canaan, Connecticut. Why is there a moment in the 2000 aughts that suddenly something so out of left field, domesticity comes into the work. And why did you choose the whitest house in America to begin with? <laughs> I, you know, I think it was an indictment of modernism in some ways, right? I think that, you know, there was a time of that it was all about this kind of looking forward to futures and reevaluating pasts and things like that. And, and I was also looking at uh, the way that Moses was looking at and carving up the city and how the access to or lack of access to getting outside of the city was this strategy to keep folks of color contained in the city. And so getting out to Long Island and places like that was not possible. So now, interestingly enough, there is a neighborhood in Sag Harbor called Nineveh, which is known as the Black Sag Harbor, which is a almost a, it's not really a, it's not, it's not a gated community by any stretch but it is like a group 
of black folks that lived in this area of Sag Harbor for a very, very long period of time. And it houses are bought and sold in a very interesting way. Anyway, so there were folks that did manage to breach Moses, you know, grand plan of containment, so to speak. But I was really looking at how at architecture and how architecture shapes the way that we think politically. And so architecture leaks into a lot of things that I do, whether it's a, a gazebo or, you know, a, a roller coaster or, you know, a Watts Towers or signage on the outside of buildings during the Watts riots. Um, smoked buildings on fire. Smoked yeah, buildings all... on fire. How they, you know, think about something like the um, Planet of the Apes. Conquest with the Planet of the Apes was set in downtown Los Angeles because it made it look like it was this futuristic city and they wanted the future to look like it was burned down for the apes to take over. And, and so architecture constantly weaves its way back into how I work all the time, you know, whether it's object making or photography, I've done series of photographs exposing some of the imperfections, shall we say, of, of some of the Ivy League institutions, those kinds of things. It's always like this look through the lens at the architecture, and it almost tells you about the ghosts that haunt those spaces. Let's begin to wrap up by talking about something that I've seen in the work for a few years now, and that is you have expanded on ideas or forms from earlier in your career, or you've gone back to things for the first time, sometimes in decades. And I want to ask about why you've chosen to extend or remake or revisit those earlier ideas. First example, in 1996, so over a quarter century ago, you started using stars in your work by mm. hiring a skywriter to draw like water vapor stars in the sky above Mocha in LA, a work that is represented in the MCA exhibition photographically. So in an, in an exhibition you recently produced in London of new work, mm. you've made stars the subject of paintings. So I appreciate that a five-point star can be a metaphor for fame and its, dissipa its dissipation for the fleetingness of fame and all these things. But that's not exactly how you're doing stars now. So why, why, why back to stars? One of the things I love talking to you about is that you have this ability, this catalog ability to go into the history of things that I have done in the past. I think stars stars come and go in my work all the time. I mean, I think that, that the stars, if I had to probably pull out one image, yeah, if I had to say there was one image that represents the studio as an you know iconic image, it would probably be a star in a way, because I think that there's a lot of reasons I use the star. You know, there's, first of all, there's the black star line from Mark Scarvey, there's that. Then stars, this idea of the shooting or fleeting star, the sadness that goes along with a shooting star. There's a kind of nostalgia for our childhood. You know, for me, it was uh, Jones Beach of being out at the beach and seeing a star right at dusk or something. You know, they're romantic in a way. They're always referenced in certain movies. One of my favorites is uh, Now Voyager is a great movie where they talk about let's not you know shoot for the, the moon when we have the stars so there's always like this reference and i think that they have 
so many layered and multiple layered meanings to them that I, that's why they keep coming back up all the time. They'll never go away. You know, like I'm sure I'll be 80 years old. If I, if I get lucky enough to live as long as Frank Bowling and I'm still making paintings as fabulous as Frank, I'll be doing stars, man. Rest assured, <laughs> you'll be talking to me and I'll be 80 something years old and Hopefully I'm still married to my wife and we're living somewhere and I'll be painting stars. And, you know, I think, you know, there's this fallen star, like, like athletes or celebrities that are fallen stars, fall out of fame. They fall out of, you know, for any number of reasons. Hollywood thing you've ever said. You know, it's one of those things that has so many different meanings to it. And I love them. And I'll tell you, I've never probably mentioned it before, but, you know, like when I was in school, astronomy was like my thing. I used to love to go, you know, to planetariums and, you know, look at constellations and all of that stuff. So stars have a personal application for me. Now, returning to work from the past, that's an interesting question because that's kind of born out of a conversation that I had with another mentor who was John Baldessari. And one, I love John dearly. You know, he was like father figure in a lot of ways. I knew when I needed to, there's a handful of artists that I could always go to for advice. And he was one of them. You know, there's, there's like John, Charles Gaines, Jack Whitten. You know, there's a handful of cats that I could say, hey, listen, I'm struggling with this thing. Or can you walk me through how to do that thing? Those guys could, I could always rely on. And John, whenever you knew John, he embraced you like he was like you were one of his kids. And I'll, I'll give you a brief story with John. My first show in Paris, I was really excited. I'd never been to Europe before. I was doing this show. Got there. We installed the show. And um, the room was, there was a lot of people in the room. I didn't know anybody. Everybody's speaking French, and I didn't speak French. And it was, it actually started drifting into a negative thing. Like, I was really bummed. I was really sad because I didn't know anybody. Nobody was talking to me. Nobody knew I was the artist. And I'm sitting there all by myself, and I'm like, this kind of sucks. I want to go back to New York. I look over at the door, and in walks the big bear. And if you know Johnny, he was six foot eight, white hair, white beard. Big dude. And uh, like this warmth came across me and I was like John what are you doing here and he was like man I was in Vienna and I saw that you had a show here I wanted to be here for your first show so I got on a plane and I came over and here I am and I Tyler oh, wow. I nearly cried man I, I probably did cry because it was it was so moving for him to do that and I thought I want to be that guy so some years passed, we were doing a, a conversation in Miami of all places, and we were having martinis. John had just installed some piece somewhere, I can't remember where. And I looked at the thing and I, I said, John, is that like an older piece or is that a newer piece? And he, he looked at me, he was like, wow, I can't believe that you picked it. It was like this little teeny little reference to an older, older thing. He was like, I can't believe you picked that up. Like, hardly anybody's pick, picked up on that. I was like, well, I, you know, I try to study your work. And he said, you know, when you get to be my age, you're fortunate enough that you've made enough work 
that you can actually go back and look at some of your older work and reference it and recontextualize it because you have this long history behind all the work that you've made since. So there's this way of talking to some of your older ideas through your newer, more informed lens. And I was like, oh my God, I can't wait till I get to that place. And he was like, well, you know, you stick around, keep working and it'll happen. And so whenever I'm in the studio, I have that wonderful ghost of John Baldessari with me all the time. And, you know, that's where that comes from. Sometimes you make work when you're younger. I think that a lot of times younger artists are so eager to get all these incredible ideas out and they have great, wonderful ideas, and they want to say everything all at once. But you got to go back and kind of unpack some of those pieces and do more. You realize that there, you have more to say about some of those ideas. It's not just like an idea frogger where you just kind of jump between the traffic. And for me at this stage, you know, I'm doing, I just did a you know, a survey, a 30 something year survey in Chicago and, and think that kind of generated an interest in some older ideas that I haven't closed out on. And um, that's where a lot of that came from. That answer perfectly sets up my last question. In 2021, you returned to schools and at least objects that reference schools with a work called You Can Paint Over Me, But I'll Still Be Here. I think I said that was 2021. So the work of yours with schools is 30 years old. Why is that something that you you thought was a good book to reopen? Or what did you, you know, want to add to it? I think I still I still had things to say. I think that um, I think the work shows that. It's a it's a you're doing schools radically differently. I should have made that clear in the question. Yeah. I think that's what that was necessary. I think that having that all that mileage underneath me allowed me to go back and, and reanalyze and relook. You know, you're not, you're not you, maybe if anger fueled some of the work, if that was one of the emotions that fueled some of the work that was being made back then, maybe a little more time to expand on some of that. And sometimes, you know, I, I always try to tell, I tell my daughter this, is that, you know, like you should, you should never really make a decision, a final decision out of emotion. You should always have, you should separate take some time to separate the emotion from the analysis of a question or a situation. And you need time to do that. If you're angry in the moment, do not make it, you'll make a mistake because that emotion is so strong and so raw. And it's almost like the idea of yelling as opposed to talking. And when you're feeling like you're not being heard and you start to yell, you're losing your focus on what it is you're trying to say and nobody can hear you anymore. And if you take the time and measure what you're going to say, I think you'll get more out of it. And I think that the same thing happens with making work is that as time passes and you, you're comfortable enough in your own like creative skin, you can start to readdress certain things without the bluster. I think you can paint over me. It is not only about the learning and the teaching that happens in school. It's a work that also kind of addresses the socialization of being in school being a member of a community in a way that the earlier work didn't always prioritize. That's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Gary Simmons, I'm enormously grateful for the opportunity to talk with you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. I always enjoy talking to you, man. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. 
Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.